Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to Psych in the City. I'm the Psych, Heather Abel, and the city is Hollywood, California. Today I have a wonderful and super exciting guest, Mark Gober. Mark is a consciousness researcher, the author of the award-winning book, An End to Upside-Down Thinking, and the sequel, An End to Upside-Down Living. And he has a really cool podcast called Where Is My Mind? He went to Princeton. He was a super awesome tennis pro there. And he has all this other stuff in his bio. I'm going to let him explain at the end of this podcast because I just am dying to talk to him. Uh, Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Of course. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited to have this conversation. Are you a Pixies fan? Because of Where's My Mind? Yes. I actually, my producer came up with it. It's awesome. So I love the Pixies. I'm like an ex- punk rocker, new waver, rocker. Well, I'm still a rocker. (laughs) So anyway, let's get to the meat of all this. I have checked out your stuff in the past couple of days. I did not know of you because I give so many readings these days that my brain, I keep my brain empty, which you talk about a lot in your stuff. So I don't read generally any longer and I don't really check stuff out. I just keep my mind empty because that's how I receive information. So I do all these readings. So I just, it's, it's about self-preservation when I'm not reading, which is empty mind. So I hadn't heard of you or anything and we just kind of magically synchronistically came together last week. Yes. So here you appear in my life and I feel like I, I kind of skimmed some of your interviews of the past and I want to take you in a totally different direction today. And it's a little selfish but I want you to explain to me why my brain is like it is. Because all the stuff you're saying is touted as sort of revolutionary and kind of cutting edge scientific quantum theory that you're finally talking about psychic ability, mediumship, telepathy, pathic, you know, things and all this stuff. But for me, it's like, I'm reading your book and I'm like, well, this is exactly how I think. This is exactly how I feel. And this is how I've been. And this is my knowingness of the universe and of life. And it's how I think since I can remember, I've been psychic since the age of five. I say I've had these abilities, which it basically means since birth, right? Yeah. And then at the age of 12, I read Siddhartha, Herman Hess. And so in the final line, it says something like time is a river. There's no beginning and there is no end. Right. So that kind of blew my mind. It opened my eyes to everything. And then I dropped some acid same year, opened my mind, blew my mind and really made me believe that I wasn't insane and that psychic ability exists. And then I sort of took my journey from there. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind, can I read you for a minute? Sure. Okay. And I'm sorry, I'm filling up the air with all my words first, but it's like, I'm just like so excited to talk to you. It's, it's, it's helpful context. Okay. Yeah, great. I just have so many things to ask you. So have you ever interviewed a psychic? I have for my podcast. 
you I have interviewed several and I've worked with a number of psychics when I started my journey a few years ago because I wanted to see if they could do what the science said they could do. And in fact, there were a number of people that could, they knew things that I couldn't explain with normal scientific theories. It helped. Because in, in, in sort of researching you, the thing I'm feeling is that you have had, you have psychic ability and that you had an experience. Is this something that you've made known or not? Because I, I didn't find this in researching you, but what I feel is that you have had yourself a psychic uh, experience and that that was what shifted you into this consciousness. I think that's true in a number of ways. I had many synchronistic experiences and some of them were sort of psychic where words would keep coming up over and over again, kind of random words in places that I wouldn't have predicted. And when I just ran the math in my head, it seemed like there was something going on. And also I found that I sort of know things. I don't have voices that speak to me. I don't have it in that way. I don't see things, but there's a knowing sense of what's right and what's not right. And that's definitely gotten stronger, but it occurred in, in my early uh, journey about four years ago too. Yeah. Cause that's what I feel is this. I felt five years ago, something happened to you that was sort of um, catastrophic or devastating or some sort of loss, some sort of pain in your heart. Cause what I do is I tune into the heart you know, there's a lot of like world event psychics and this kind of psychic and that I, I'm not really good at world events. It's just the heart. Right. So I hurt, felt your heart in so much pain at that time. And then I felt like a loss or a devastation. And then I felt like your your um, world upside down. And then I thought, OK, in that moment, he had an epiphany or a psychic vision. And then that's when your book was birthed and God came through you. I say God and God came through you and you wrote that book very quickly. The first one. So that's what I saw because I meditate and then I drink coffee. It opens my third eye. That's why I'm talking so much. This is what I saw happening to you. Well, let me give some context of, of my journey. So my background's in business. After graduating from Princeton, I went into investment banking in 2008 during the financial crisis, was there for a little under two years. It was a very difficult period. Normally, investment banking is difficult, but during that period, it was even more difficult. And during this whole phase, even in college, I didn't think life had any meaning. I just thought everything was random. When the body dies, it's over. I never even thought about psychic abilities or the science behind that. I just had a, such a mainstream education. I left New York and went into um, advising tech companies and became a partner at the firm after 10 years, uh, working with both large and small companies on innovation and their business strategy. So that's my background. And it was about four years ago when there was a shift, but you mentioned five years ago and, I, and there, there were things that were happening around then. Basically starting in, so if 2016 is when I had the explicit shift, there were, I kind of hit a wall in, in a few ways in 2014 and 2015, where in addition to not thinking life had any meaning, I, was, I had always been going through the motions. I always wanted to be an achiever and try to be the best at whatever I did, whether it was tennis in college and under before that or in business. And I started to realized that the achievements that I was attaining were not bringing the meaning that I hoped they would. And beyond that, I thought life was random. And then I started to have a few disappointments on top of all that, where there were some business deals that didn't go my way and the environment around intellectual property, which was what I was doing at the time, that started to change and it affected the deals and had some relationships that didn't work out. So there were a bunch of things happening 2014, 2015, and then that led me in 2016, I was listening to podcasts that talked about some of the psychic stuff. 
So I went into it not in the best place. In addition to thinking life had no meaning, life was not going my way. Even though on the surface, if you talked to me and saw my life, you probably would have said it was okay. But internally, I definitely was not in great shape. Yeah, that's what I felt was a broken heart and pain and loss. And then were you in New York City or like a city, a city environment? Because it's like all crashing in on you around there. It's so chaotic, chaotic, chaotic. And you're letting the chaos get to you, right? It's like everything crashing down on you. Yeah, it was like a lot of things hit at once. That's definitely what happened. And at that point, when I, I can trace back and see that actually opened me up because I realized that my way of thinking was not going to lead to a very good outcome in the end. So in, the, in that sense, it was a blessing. But at the time, it felt like everything was crashing. And you mentioned cities. I was, I mean, in San Francisco, but also I was back and forth between East Coast and the West Coast. So there was a lot of city activity. Yeah. And I just feel like it was like an epiphany or something happened and you ch- you shifted your your reality completely. And then you were downloaded this book like that. Amazing. And so it brings me to this this thing of like, I, I, I mean, I want to just simplify what you what you do and what you talk about. And it's basically what if consciousness comes from outside the body? If consciousness is not native to the brain, then psychic ability and mediumship actually do exist to put it in layman's terms. Right. And so this is something that I just simply know. And it's it's like woohoo to the rest of the world but it's just um like my grandmother was psychic and when she was dying on her deathbed she's sort of skeletal sinking into the bed just almost almost dead right physically and she looked at me and she said heather it's all real just know that it's all real and that fucking blew my mind you know and it's terminal lucidity when that happens that's a phenomenon on the deathbed where a person is usually an impairment. Like sometimes they have Alzheimer's, no memory, and they snap back into it and start speaking like nothing happened. And sometimes messages like that. And then they die shortly thereafter. Beautiful. And it's stuck with me forever because I often think, am I insane? You know, because this stuff is so heavy for me. And I'm like, um, you know, I don't know if you checked out my stuff, but I mean, I will peg exact dates. I will peg exact names, exact, my stuff is really eerily exact a lot of the time. For instance, this lady, Dorothy, I said, your house is going to sell on May 18th. And she texted me the week before, hey, it's, it hasn't sold. I said, is it May 18th? And, you know, I can be cocky. And then the next week, May 18th, the house sells. You know what I mean? Where does this stuff come from, Mark? That's what, what, because I don't pretend to know. A lot of psychics are like, oh, I'm guided by the spirits. I'm guided by this. I don't freaking know. It just comes in here. When I go into a trance, I go into a trance-like state. And then I also want to ask you, what's that about? Like, how am I, you know, it it all, it all kind of still freaks me out a little bit. Okay. Well, let me give you my, my perspective on this, because this is like what I've been trying to understand um, for the last few years. My view of reality and consciousness, when I say consciousness, I'm talking about the awareness, the subjective experience that any of us has right now. So when I say that I am speaking to you, that sense of I-ness is what I mean by consciousness. I can't touch it, but it's there experiencing everything. So we all have consciousness. It's super important. And the big question in science is where does that come from? Does it come from the brain? 
How does it come from the brain? And of course, I'm arguing it doesn't come from the brain. But the analogy I like, and I think this is a, it's helpful because it's visual, is from a philosopher, Bernardo Castro. He says that we are like whirlpools within a stream of consciousness, an infinite stream. So you're a whirlpool, I'm a whirlpool. Each of us is in, like, it's like a localization, an individual within this whole of consciousness. So when you, as, as an individual body, or feels like an individual body, even though we're interconnected as one, we are tapping into knowledge, into the broader stream. And this stream is also beyond space and time. So when things happen where you know something before it happens, it's because the stream itself is beyond time. And when you tap into the broader water, so to speak, that's when the information flows in. So you mentioned trance-like state. Yes. There's this there's this pattern that is appearing in a number of different areas where when the brain has less activity, there's an enriched consciousness. Yes. Less brain, more consciousness. Yes. So trance-like state, what is that doing? Quieting the mind in a certain way, like hypnosis or meditation. The most extreme examples of this, a near-death experience where a person, let's say they're in cardiac arrest, Their heart stops beating. There's no blood flowing to the brain. So the brain is basically off, if not completely off. And yet the person sometimes has a memory that's validated as being accurate when they are resuscitated. So they have a memory that's not a hallucination because it's accurate sometimes. And they talk about how their thinking is clearer than usual, more logical than usual. They talk sometimes about 360 degree vision, omnidirectional vision. This is at a time when you have no brain, lots of consciousness. So what does that say about the body and the brain? That that's actually getting in the way. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like if consciousness is the sun, we have these clouds in our mind getting in the way. And when you meditate or go into a trance or do other things, psychedelics, you mentioned that, that's when there's a reduction in brain activity. That's the recent findings. There's a, a trip occurs when certain parts of the brain turn off or are reduced in functioning. It's clouds go out of the way. And the rays of the sun come in more clearly. And that's why meditation is so important. We're going into a trance-like state for psychic or medium mystic abilities. So prior to each reading I do, I care deeply for each person. It's, it's like my soul is attached to theirs. And I, my, I feel, you know, I'm an empath. Like everybody said, I'm an empath. But it, I, I really am. And, and so I do a meditation. Like prior to this, I meditated on you. And then I say psychic ability is feeling, not thinking. It's very important that I don't think during a reading because that's what gets in the way. So it's beautiful what you just said. That's exactly how I feel because it's feeling, not thinking. If I think, then I'm going to lose. If I look at you and go, oh, he looks like a banker, he, you know, that's all wrong. It, it has to just organically flow and I have to just say what comes into my consciousness. And in like you're saying, it's out, it's, it's out here in the oneness of all of us, right? Which I've always known though, that's the thing is, is it's like this radical concept that you're presenting. But for me, it's like, I've always known that. So you nailed it, Heather, that this is not, it's actually not revolutionary. It's revolutionary relative to what's taught in in classes and what the media tells us. But these are spiritual truths that people have known for thousands of years and they know it because they've experienced it directly. And that's aside from all the science that I talk about that's one of the more compelling pieces of evidence that people independently across periods of time, different cultures, they experience this. They experience what, what they call oneness or psychic phenomena. They, you can't deny it when it happens to you. 
every day I experience this. And then also, here's the thing I wanted to talk to you about. I'm like so excited. I'm like, can we hang out all the time? But anyway, I smoke weed, right? I make no bones about it. But uh, at the end of every day, I can't, it shuts off my ability. So it shuts off my visions. So I need it to get rid of all this, all these visions. So every day at the end of the day, I smoke weed because I want to turn it all off. And people say, oh, there should be a healthier way or more this or that. I don't care. Weed helps a lot and it's instant. So what do you say to that? Yeah. So you're reminding me of Paul Selig, who I also interviewed for my podcast. He is a channeler. And that means that when he is doing psychic stuff, a being, a consciousness that's not in a physical body, basically enters his body and speaks through him. Mm-hmm. So when you hear him talk, it's a different entity. And I've actually talked to the researchers at the Institute of Noetic Sciences where I'm on the board, where they study channelers and they show that this is not a psychiatric issue. It doesn't match up with multiple personality disorder. And there are other features which suggest that some of these people are actually real. But what he talks about when he he says that the brain is sort of like an antenna and other people say this too, where he's tuning into a station and it's like all of a sudden he tunes into one station. That's not this physical reality. And it's these beings come through and speak to him. Now you're reminding me of what he said about his psychic abilities of tuning into other people's emotions. Cause he will look at someone he says, and it's like tuning into a new station and he feels everything that they're feeling. And what I'm wondering about you is that you are, you're tuning into all kinds of stations maybe. And it's so intense that smoking or whatever else you do is, is helping you maybe cloud the information because so much is coming in. I haven't had the experience. I'm just trying to interpret. You have so much coming in and you haven't figured out how to turn it off. It, it's like meditation is great, but that's only a temporary turn off, right? Yeah. The weed, it's like a long turn off. Right. So it's like I don't pretend to be completely evolved or perfect or, uh, you know, on that vibration. That's why I don't call myself a healer. I'm dropping the spiritual advisor thing because it's like I feel like I'm still trying to heal myself, you know, and I feel like all I can do is guide people in the direction of of healing. But but they're the ones who heal themselves. I completely agree. I think we all act as guides in different ways to help each other, but ultimately the person has to take it upon his or herself to do the work. We can't do it for them. So I took some notes. I want to ask you about some other stuff. Do you mind? Oh, the mediumship. So you talk about how the the body, uh, you, you talk about how the body uh, can show. Well, I'll just ask you this. When I contact a spirit, I am a medium as well. However, I hate it. And it's also much more difficult than my psychic ability. And you're saying one part of the brain has the psychic ability and it's a different part of the brain that has the mediumship. But when a spirit comes through, my my whole body will break out in chills. So I'll say, oh, I'm getting a spirit. And then it's like, or it's, it's vice versa. This happens. Then I get the spirit. And you wrote about that, which blew my mind because I've never... See, heard anyone talk about it or, or write about it. I'm sure they have, but it really resonated with me. Yeah, it's a common report. Um, okay. First of all, this idea that mediumship and psychic abilities are both quote unquote paranormal, but they're only paranormal if we assume normal is something that it's not. So I would consider them to be very normal, but they're both otherworldly. They're tapping into the stream in some way, but it's very significant that they're, they're distinct. 
that mediumship is tapping into a form of consciousness that's no longer in a body. So someone who might have died, for example, whereas psychic abilities is, is just tapping into general information. And the emerging neuroscience on this, looking at people who have both psychic abilities and mediumship abilities, because not everyone does both, that they show that activations in different parts of the brain. So that's number a very important point. But secondly, this idea that there are physical manifestations, physical things that come about with psychic abilities or medium mystic abilities. People talk about this often, chills, goosebumps, and it's a way of knowing. It's almost like another, it's a t- different type of a sense to know the type of information that's coming in. And then what about, for instance, I will get the message of, uh, they, for instance, I had this guy, I said, I all I'm seeing, because I only get like quick images and then I feel the sentiment of the person uh, who is on the other side. So I don't have these conversations. I don't do that. So I'll just, it's, it's again for me, like feeling the heart of the person. So it'll be like, oh, you know, um, a apologetic or then I see a little bit of who they were the characteristics but for instance I I had a guy I said oh all I see is this Dodgers cap and then he'll say he said uh the last thing we did was go to a Dodgers game so it's always just a little like here's my secret message to you so they know that the person is there but in order for me to access that it takes so much more energy than psychic reading I've heard this from a number of people Really? It can be energetically draining. And I know some people, I'm thinking of one in particular who channels, does full body channeling. So again, it's mediumship, but where the body's taken over. And at first it was so exhausting, actually two now I'm thinking of, that he had to lie down for hours because there was too much energy. And eventually over time got used to it and had to change his diet and do all sorts of spiritual practice to get it, the nervous system actually, so that it was capable of handling these energies. Because that's also part of the stream whirlpool analogy, is that beyond the individual whirlpool can be very intense energies. In a near-death experience, people will talk about being immersed in unconditional love or something that they can't even describe, it's so intense. I've had this happen in meditation twice where it was really extreme. This energy came in that was so strong, I thought I was going to die. It was extremely pleasurable. It was like beyond a love feeling. That's the only word I could use that's sort of close, but it was a like beyond ecstasy, and it took over my body, like my body was being filled with it, and my heart was beating out of my chest because I thought I was going to die, and my body shut it down. So this is, I think, what happens when we tap into the stream beyond the body, and the nervous system isn't always capable of handling it, or it's not always ready. Right. God, it's so it's so crazy because it's like um, I just exist like this and never really have thought about it until you entered my sphere this this week. Like it's like this is just who I am kind of thing. And so I don't I don't hang out with psychics or healers. I'm really into fashion and rock and roll and, you know, the Hollywood lifestyle and this and this and that. And so I've always felt like this is just who I am. And then reading your stuff, I'm like, this is just how I feel anyway, because this is how the world actually exists, right? So everything you wrote, I'm like, well, that's just how the world exists. So you are correct. Thank you. Does that make sense? No, I I appreciate you saying that. One of the reasons I wrote the book, wrote books and podcast is that I've talk to people in your shoes and also read about lots of people that just have these abilities and it's natural, nothing, they didn't do anything for it in order for it to happen. And putting the science together helps to validate people's personal experiences because I've heard it can be isolating. 
to have experiences and not be able to communicate. And, and how can someone understand if they haven't experienced it too? It's completely isolating. And it, it's, it's also for me, I keep away from all other uh, these types because there's a lot of charlatans. I can look in your eyes and I know if you're a seer, I call it seer. You can see things. If I see in someone's eyes that they're not real, it hurts my heart. So I'm I glad you mentioned that though. Why so? Because not even though psychic phenomena are real scientifically, based on all the research I've done, and there are people like you that have strong talents, not everyone claiming to have a psychic ability does. And even people who are psychic are not always 100% accurate. And even worse than that, some people can manipulate with their claims of having psychic abilities. So that's, I'm glad we talked about that because I wouldn't want people to come away from this conversation being willing to talk to any person claiming to have psychic abilities. That's dangerous. And then you can end up being manipulated. Absolutely. And I went, when I, I started being offered um, TV shows and things, you know, uh, early on. And at that point I started looking at the TV psychics and I felt really kind of icky inside because it felt like they weren't really, in my opinion, a lot of them were not real to me and I could feel it. And so I just sort of shied away from all that stuff, you know, and my clients, I've never advertised for them. It's all word of mouth. And because these m sort of miracles or I don't want to be that arrogant, but, you know, things that are mind blowing have happened. I've been in business for 15 years without ever doing an advertisement, you know, because people are like, holy shit, she's legitimate. This is crazy. And so I just have this career that is completely secret and underground because of the proofs in the pudding, you know? Yeah. Well, I think you're raising an important point, which is around the intent of the work. Mm -hmm. If the intent is to become famous or for individual selfish reasons, that, that will pollute the outcome. Even someone that has actual psychic abilities, because based on everything I've seen, we can tap into higher and higher energies the more selfless we are. If it's really about helping people, then we can tap into dimensions that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. And I want to raise that. That's an important point because there are seemingly different dimensions of reality with different forms of consciousness that we can tap into. And in my new book, An End to Upside Down Living, I mention the phenomenon of channeling as a caution. It's in the chapter under cautions for this reason, because sometimes people are genuine and they, they can tap into these forms of consciousness and they are bringing in a being that's not them or information that they couldn't have known otherwise. But those beings are not always benevolent. Sometimes they are actually nefarious at worst, where they could want to harm someone, or maybe they're just manipulative, or they want to play tricks, or maybe they're not like an angel, but they're just kind of so-so. There's a spectrum, and there have been people that have actually been harmed by this. And one example I give in my book is a woman who was doing legitimate channeling, and she tapped into beings that were giving her advice in her life, and she took their advice about leaving her job. And so she left her job, even though she wasn't sure it was a good decision. She ended up leaving and it ended up being a very bad decision. And she claims that the beings that she had been communicating with started to laugh and told her she should kill herself. So they were low level beings that were manipulating. And I've heard this as a warning in many spiritual traditions also. 
beware of celestial beings, or at least be discerning, because there are some that can be very helpful, but there's a spectrum. So for me, it feels, and this might be corny, but it just feels like so much love, and I hate the term love and light, but I mean, just because it's a little corny, but for me, it just feels like so much love and angelic and peaceful energy all the time. But I think I've also cultivated that with my spiritual practice to make sure that it's all this white, angelic, beautiful energy. Um, Because in the beginning, it was actually pretty dark, especially in my teen years. It was very dark. And so I obtained a spiritual practice and I learned about meditation and yoga, which I think is the basis of all spiritual practice. And I sort of took myself on this journey of, of love and uh, somewhat enlightening myself and kind of going there and, and keeping myself pure and away from the scene of, of wellness, if that makes any sense. And sort of closing myself off from that whole scene and not becoming addicted to spirituality or uh, spiritual bypassing. So I kind of just created this bubble for myself to make it pure, like you say. Yeah. What you're describing, I think, is the process for all of us, whether we want to be actively psychic in the way that you are or just to tap into the best versions of ourselves, is we have to address all of the quote-unquote clouds that are blocking the rays of the sun. And if we don't, it's going to hinder our ability to tap into the pure rays of consciousness or we'll get less of them. And that's where I think these dimensions of consciousness come in, where there is darkness if we've got lots of clouds. And the more work we do on ourselves to actually address where we have darkness or things that we've not overcome, we have to transcend them in order to tap into the highest light, consciousness, whatever. And when we do that, I think the information is even stronger. That's so cool. But in the same token, I don't know if I subscribe to this like spirit guide thing. And I was born on an Indian reservation and delivered by this beautiful Indian woman and, you know, under a full moon on the first day of summer. And there's beautiful things uh, and synchronicities. I believe in all of that. But I don't feel like there's these necessarily these these angelic or Indian kind of guides telling me things. I, I just feel like it just happens. People report psychic abilities in different ways. And it seems like even those who, who are professionally psychic or that's one of their big skills, the information comes in differently. Sometimes it's visual, sometimes it's auditory, sometimes it's just a sense of knowing. So I have talked to people where they feel like it's a being talking to them. It's an actual entity. And so the way we get information, it, it might our, our interpretation of the information might just vary. And a thought could come in, and who knows where that comes from, like you said earlier. Is it another form of consciousness that's not in a body that's kind of blowing that ray of consciousness into our brain somehow so that we perceive it and we don't recognize it as a being? Or is it not? Is it just we're tapping into information that's just there and it's not a being that's giving it to us? I don't know the answer. And then what about this question? Okay, in the beginning, I used to think, is it going to come? every time why does it come every time because there's that insecurity am i going to get any messages and now it's like i'm cocky i mean i'm older it's like oh free flowing every time no problem but in the beginning of doing this work i would be like wait is it not going to come this time (laughs) you know or is it that you're just completely open to the universe and and it's just your your sort of uh realm of consciousness is such that it always comes Okay, a few things come to mind on this. What you described is what I've heard from a lot of 
other people who are psychic or channel. If what you described at first, this not being sure if the information will come through and being nervous about it. And that's an important point because the information that's coming is not derived from Mark or Heather. We're tapping into the stream. We are the conduit for it. And that's, it's always important to keep that in mind that it's not ours. And that reinforces a sense of humility, which is, I think allows us to tap into even more when we realize we are the vessel for it. And that's probably what you've done is you've opened yourself up to the point where it just comes in and it's come in so many times where you feel confident that it's there. You're also reminding me of a story from uh, Reverend Bill McDonald. He did an interview on a show called Buddha at the Gas Pump. And I hope I'm I'm saying it correctly, but it just, I haven't even talked about this, but I'm remembering it now where he's always been very intuitive and something happened where he took the intuitive abilities for granted or basically said, I don't need these intuitive abilities, something like that. And they went away for a short amount of time. And he realized that, wait a second, I can't function like this because I I used to have a sense of where to go or what things were going to happen in his own life, not just doing readings. And so he realized he he gained an appreciation for these, the sense of knowing that he used to have, and then it came back. But it's an important idea that it's not ours and to be grateful for any information that comes in. Oh God, yes. I thank God every day because my sole purpose in life is to help others. I mean, I wish I could be a fashion designer more than anything, but my sole purpose in life is to help others. And that's why I have this blessing and curse or gift and curse, I say. But I want to work in fashion, you know? <laughs> so in my new book, It Ends Upside Down Living, I have 10 approaches for living under this idea that we're interconnected as part of the one consciousness. Erwin Schrodinger, the Nobel Prize winning physicist said, in truth, there is only one mind. So I call it the one mind. And is that God to you? The one mind? Does that mean God? Well, it depends on how we define God. Some people will define God as as another being and something that's external, a third party. I view the entire stream of consciousness as the one mind. So if we wanted to, we could call that God. And that would mean that each of us individually is part of that. So the, the spiritual saying that God is both imminent within and transcendent beyond. That's what I'm talking about. So it's a much more mystical perspective than saying that there's a third party God and I'm praying to something external or completely external. What I want to emphasize in my work is that it's within all of us. And that's extremely empowering because it doesn't matter who you are, it's within you. So that's part of the awakening journey. But on this point of the one mind, I give 10 approaches for living based on all the research I've done and and taking uh, the advice of many spiritual teachers, this idea of stewardship that we are stewards of our skills or resources or whatever it is that we have that we can contribute to the world. And for each of us, it might be different. For you, you have extraordinary psychic abilities and that's what you've been harnessing. For me, maybe I have intuition and and psychic abilities in a certain way, but I'm not doing it in the same way as you are. I've been taking my years of training in school and business to synthesize lots of scientific information and spiritual information and put it into an absorbable form for people who have similar backgrounds to me, for example. Um, And so I'm using skills that I have. I'm a steward of these skills. You are a steward of your abilities. And I think that's the task for all of us is what do we have that we can contribute to the world? Doesn't matter what it is. Maybe in some capacity we want to be in fashion, but it's not where where we're going to be able to make the biggest contribution. So I think that's maybe a shortcut for all of us. What are we uniquely good at? And everyone has something or what can we contribute? Maybe it's money or maybe it's some other thing that we can be giving as a resource. What are we stewards of? And it changes the way we look at all of our abilities because then I think we can become grateful for the gifts that we can give rather than saying, oh, I'm so great at this and 
and look at me for, for me. The skills are gifts that we are given as part of the one mind so that we can contribute to the one mind. Oh, God, I love that. I love what I do. I mean, I'm elated every day to do this. You know, it's just the shutting off that's hard or, you know, you get a little whatever. But I love what I do. It's it's immensely fulfilling. That's another one of my uh, things that I talk about of how do we know if we're like going in the right direction or if we're being fully authentic. If you have that passion that you're describing, which you clearly have, that's sort of a sign from the broader intelligence that we're on the right track. We can't touch it. There's no sign that says, hey, you're doing the right thing, or maybe that does happen, but it, sometimes it's much more subtle, so we have to tune into passions. And for me, that's been the biggest guide. You talk about passion a lot. Yeah, because if, I know, if I'm passionate about something, then I know it's the right track, and when I'm not, I can't do it. So there are periods when I don't even want to read books at all and I want to just meditate or do something else. And then other periods where all day I'll be reading. And I've learned to just listen to that. Wherever the passion leads me, I'm not going to judge it because my brain is limiting my consciousness, just like everyone's brains. When we get the brain out of the way and listen to these feelings, which I was not trained to do, that's when it actually can guide us. I call it the space between thoughts. I'm always trying to get to the space between thoughts. And I I was raised by hippies, so I kind of was nurtured to be this thoughtless kind of like really kind of be free like that. Right. But what I was going to ask you about is you were talking about the middle way, right? In Buddhism, where you kind of don't go to extremes, You're, you're just sort of in this middle zone, right? And I have this propensity to go to extremes and be fearless, completely fearless. And you're saying that can get you into trouble? Well, the middle way has lots of different interpretations. And and the way I think about it is it's more about rigidness of opinion. Sometimes going to what you would call an extreme isn't actually an extreme. It's the appropriate thing. But to be stuck in a certain point of view to be rigid and say that it has to be not extreme or extreme, that's the potential danger. Okay. Because I, I, I don't know if uh, what your thoughts are on being fearless because I, I have this, I don't have many fears any longer of really anything. I had a gun in my face. I was mugged. I said to the guy, F you, and I walked away. You know, it's like, I just... How do we obtain fearlessness? I don't know if you cover that, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, when we realize that we're infinite beings and actually internalize that, there's no possible fear. Fear becomes irrational. I feel like that. I don't feel fear any longer, really, you know? And I think you get to that state of consciousness through this kind of work, but I'm like blindly doing this work maybe or something. What do you want to tell me about? I like to talk about the life review phenomenon, which we haven't covered. Let's do it. It's one of the most important things I've ever learned. Cool. I mentioned near-death experiences earlier, and this is where a person, their body's shut off in some way, brain's off or, or barely functioning, and people have these immense experiences that change their lives. And sometimes they change their professions afterwards, change relationships, because they experience this broader reality, which appears not to be a hallucination. So if we accept the near-death experience, or at least some of them, to be not hallucinations and actually teachers of the the expanded reality, the stream beyond the whirlpool, then what happens during the near-death experience can be an important teacher to us. We can learn from it. A number of people who have near-death experiences report having a life review where they relive every event in their lives in a flash. So time is somehow compressed. And this is like Einstein's time theories, relativity, where time is not a fixed quantity. And this is experienced viscerally by people because in a flash of a second, 
their whole life happened. So they don't know how long it was, but they re-experienced everything. They re-experienced it not only through their own eyes, but through the eyes of each person they impacted. So this is the one mind in action. Oh, I love that. This is like being able to see through things through multiple lenses when consciousness is liberated from the brain. In my podcast, Where Is My Mind, I interviewed a number of people who had near-death experiences in addition to the scientists, like at the University of Virginia and other places. But one of the guys I interviewed, Daniel Brinkley, has had four near-death experiences. He was electrocuted, had open-heart surgery twice, brain surgery once. And each time he had a life review that started at the beginning of his life and went up to the whatever point he was at. So by his fourth near-death experience, he had relived certain things four times. And he was able to see the progress in his life. <laughs> now, for him, this is rare for a number of reasons. Not everyone has four near-death experiences. I mean, if you are electrocuted like that, a lot of people die and they're not resuscitated. So in order to be resuscitated and then also have the memories, some people come back and they don't report a near-death experience. So we don't understand how this works, whether the brain shields the memories or certain things are blocked. We don't know. But enough people come back with similar things that, that it seems to be teaching us something. In Daniel Brinkley's case, his memories in the life review were very extreme because he fought in Vietnam in combat. And what he told me is that in combat, he was vicious. So during his life review, he felt the pain of each person that he killed through the people's eyes. He became the person he was killing. And not only that, he felt the pain of the child that would no longer have a father because he had killed the father in combat. This is the one mind again. He felt the indirect effects. It's a ripple so when he came back from his first near-death experience, I mean, that shifted everything for him. He became a hospice volunteer. So in his later life reviews, which at the time he didn't know he was going to have, of course, he got to see what it was like being the dying person, looking into his eyes as the hospice volunteer, comforting this person who was dying. So he was able to see his own progress in life. And the biggest lesson that people come back with is that the little things are actually the big things in life. Yeah. In the life review, people aren't looking at how big their house is or what kind of car they drive. They are kicking themselves for not treating the cashier at the store well because they knew better. And they saw how their negative interaction with the cashier impacted every other person in line afterwards. And you see how everything's interconnected when people have this opportunity in the life review. So I think it's, it's super important for all of us and a luxury to be able to look at this research and say, look, we don't have to go through a life review ourselves while we're in this body or almost die to learn the lessons and start to implement them. I so agree. Every day for me is a life review. I grew up with no running water, no electricity, um, very, very poor and with many, many struggles and abuse and all this kind of stuff and really horrible early life. So I think I, I learned to be extremely grateful in this life. And so when you have gratitude, I mean, as we all know, you, you, you sort of give back a lot and you feel very happy for what you have. And so I think you're more generous maybe, or kind to others. For instance, this morning I was in the drive-thru and I paid for the person behind me. God forbid I, I was in the drive-thru. But the lady uh, who was taking the money, she didn't understand, right? I said, can I pay for the person behind me? What are you talking about? Wait, what do you mean? You know, because it's strange that someone would want to do something nice, right? But I have all these little funky things I do because I think your life review should be every day. Yeah, yeah, completely. And that's actually what Daniel Brinkley told me when I interviewed him. He says when he goes to bed at night, that's what you can do. You just review your day. Everything becomes part of your life review if you look at it from that lens. And just imagine if 
a percentage of the world started doing that. All the world's problems we see, they're related to this, is, this issue of believing that we're separate, believing that we're not infinite beings, and believing that when we die, it's over and there's no real meaning to life. So why does it matter to go out of our way to help people? If, if people had an understanding that what we're talking about is built into the fabric of reality, it's not a matter of wanting to believe it or not wanting to believe it. If it's in reality, that's what it is whether we like it or not. So my perspective is the best thing we can do is just align with it and act accordingly. It's insane. And I mean, we didn't really touch upon it, but there's a lot of people who aren't seen. I love to give love and energy and kindness and compliments to the people who aren't seen. For instance, like at the DMV, the the curmudgeonly lady who's behind the counter, you know, tell her you have beautiful eyes or something like this. And, And then you see the smile come over their face. And it's like, this is a person who's in hell all day at this horrible job and blah, blah, blah. It's just like giving the people who aren't seen love and kindness, you know, that's like my my crusade as well. I don't know. It just feels so good. Yeah, which makes sense. Because if those people are you at some level, that there is no separation, then when you're helping others, you're helping your, yourself. So I like to say that altruism is the highest form of selfishness, actually. Oh, God, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. And, you know, you talk about the separateness. It's just like I, I feel like my whole life I've lived uh, as the outcast and completely separated from from. Um, and and we, I believe in this one mind and the whole thing. But like you go back to that childhood as a punk rocker because I didn't fit in with anyone because of this, you know. But I, I also wanted to touch upon the savant thing because you're, you're saying like someone could be very stunted. Like I feel like. Like I'm very stunted in a lot of areas, but then the psychic thing is where I excel, but I'm, my brain is very limited in other areas, like in my ability to focus and um, a lot of these things. So it, 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 what, what, do you, what are your thoughts there? So savant syndrome is one of the examples I use to, to show this pattern of less brain, more consciousness. A savant is someone that has extraordinary abilities in a certain way. The most extreme cases are people like uh, Rain Man, the the part played by Dustin Hoffman based off of a real person to have an incredible memory, mathematical abilities that you couldn't imagine, or all of a sudden you have crazy music abilities that you can't explain. Usually those are accompanied by certain deficiencies in the brain or certain abnormalities relative to what most brains look like. So we see, again, less brain, more consciousness. So it's, if we go back to the analogy of the brain as an antenna, which is again, just an analogy, when the brain has damage in certain ways, quote unquote damage, it's reconfiguring the antenna to tap into something different. And that's the way I look at the brain or anything that we would call a quote unquote disorder. It's really just a different station that people are tapping into, which can have various implications. It can make life challenging for some people and it can make life easy for some people. So in my coming from abuse, I feel like it enhanced my abilities because you're having to anticipate the situations, right? So you're having to anticipate the abuse. As a child, you're always on edge, right? So it's it's like, I feel like those children are have like this tendency towards psychic ability. And then also it your thoughts on it running in the family that my grandmother was psychic. Those two things combined it's like a no a no brainer well trauma seems to be able to induce a lot of this probably for the reasons you mentioned that wanting to anticipate when the next thing is going to happen and having to be on alert but i've also heard the idea that trauma creates many dissociations in the personality depending okay. on, on the extent of the 
trauma can create a major dissociation. And that can open people up to other realms, other dimensions. It's sort of like configuring the antenna in a new way. And I don't think that's fully understood, but there's something there around, I don't know what it is about trauma that opens people up. Maybe it just wipes out whatever is blocking this broader consciousness. It wipes out certain clouds for some reason. And right. people tap in to a level of, of reality that they wouldn't have otherwise. So amazing. What are your thoughts on it running in families, like from generation to generation? It's a pattern that people talk about often. And actually right now, the Institute of Noetic Sciences is, is looking at this scientifically to see if there's some tie to genes. Because not many people are studying psychic phenomena. It's hard to get funding for it because it's so controversial. And let alone looking at psychics and genetics together. <laughs> it's, right. it's, a, it's kind of a nuanced area for science today. So the studies aren't there relative to the studies that we have in other domains where there's lots of evidence, but I would say that it seems to be a pattern where just like maybe someone who's athletic had athletic parents, there seem to be things, traits that are passed down, having enhanced psychic abilities might be one of them. And what I, what I argue in my work and what the science shows is that we all have psychic abilities, but the degree to which we have them can vary. And that can vary based on just innate skills that we have, but also how much we've trained or harnessed them. Just like an athlete, maybe someone who's not uh, naturally gifted could train really hard and reach a certain point, but that person will, will have hit a ceiling because of natural abilities. I find that the more, because I've read uh, professionally for the last 15 years, right? So the more I do it, it's insane these days. I mean, it's like, whoa, the stuff that happens. I go, how did I know that? You know, and I blow my own mind because I've been doing it so frequently and, you know, for 15 years that it's like it's insane comparative to before, right? So, but as far as professionally trained, I've never, ever done anything, you know, like taking a psychic class. Like I met this girl who said, I went to the psychic school and da, da, da. I'm, I'm like, what, 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 what do they do there? But I'm sure it's legit, but it just seems so silly to me. Well, it seems like you've just known how to do it and you've been practicing. So it's getting easier and easier. I don't know. Um, but I, 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 gosh, I just, I find you to be uh, so interesting and fantastic. I really love that you're doing this because um, all I have to say to you is like what my grandmother said is it, it is all real. And I 100% do believe it is genetic. It's 100% genetic. I mean, I just feel like you're speaking my language. Um, do you have anything else to add? Life review is really important. If we all just act every day and think there's a, a possibility that we'll have a life review, how would it change every interaction? God, I so agree. And having fun is so important. I think people can get so serious. And on my Instagram, I post spiritual advice every day, but I also post jokes because we have to laugh. And the other thing I wanted to say was be still and know that I am God. That's what you made me think of when you talk about this universal one mind is be still and know that I am God. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And that's basically how I meditate. I don't have a meditation method. And earlier this year in 2020, for the first time, I went on two meditation retreats. Uh -huh. I couldn't meditate for 15 minutes before that. One was six days. One was five days. No talking, no gesturing, no reading, no electronics, other than a one-page meditation sheet. There's nothing you could do. And the method that 
I learned there was really just a surrender meditation of I'm part of the stream, basically translating into my into our language here. I'm part of the stream. I'm within it. And I'm going to tap into whatever needs to enter me, basically, that I can be a conduit for. So since those retreats, I started having crazy energy experiences and all, and all the stuff and, you know, like third eye activations, which I had never, um, I mean, I had heard about, but they started actually happening to me. But I think the, the intention going into meditation is really important. What are we, yes. what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And to me, it's, it's like what you said. I am, I am part of all that is. This is this idea that God is both imminent and transcendent, not just beyond, but also within. It's actually us. The consciousness that's experiencing your life is part of the consciousness that's the basis of all reality. And that's what meditation can help us do to just be quiet and remember that's our identity. The body's not our identity. The body is the vehicle that is being used for consciousness to have an experience in the physical realm. Absolutely. It has really been my pleasure. And thank you for letting me be a little selfish. <laughs> Fun. You ask great questions. Thank you. You're completely awesome. Please give us your bio and where we can find you and all that good stuff. Sure. Well, my website is my name, markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. And that has all my info. But my books are An End to Upside Down Thinking and the sequel, An End to Upside Down Living. They're available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble all the major bookstores, Audible, Kindle, and hardcover. And also my podcast, Where Is My Mind, which is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all the major players. If you ever want a reading, don't hesitate to call me. Anything you need, I'm here. You are awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for what you're doing in the world. Thank you. Mwah. Big kiss. Bye-bye. Bye. If you liked today's episode, please leave me a rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you for listening. For more info about me, visit my website at heatherobble.com. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.